uh, a long sermon. I was talking with Joshua Santani actually about some times that uh, we could potentially have him out uh, to preach. Uh, fresh, not quite fresh from seminary, but fresh from the ministry that he's engaged in. And so we were thinking about this message and he said, that would be a challenge to preach somebody else's sermon. And I feel the weight of why Joshua wasn't exactly inclined to take this one on. Um, not just because this is Peter's first recorded sermon, but because it's incredibly direct. There's, there are times that I'm trying to make application in the middle of a message. And there are moments that it seems appropriate to say, hey, you guys have to deal with this. There are other moments it seems more appropriate to say, guys, isn't this something we all have to deal with? Peter has chosen and then doubled down on the first tactic. This is Peter talking to a group of people at Pentecost, one of the pilgrimage feasts, about something that took place a long time ago, 50 days ago, at another pilgrimage feast that would have involved some of the people that were there, to be sure, but also probably a good number of people that weren't there. And yet he has no problem indicting, to use a Southern phrase, all y'all. He speaks not just to you and you and you, or to the selected y'all in the midst of this larger group, but as they have doubts about what we've read about in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, he seems to speak very powerfully to all of them. But he also grabs a couple Old Testament texts that are insanely even more indicting. Here's how we're going to begin today. I am going to read to you from the book of Joel. This is Joel chapter 2. I don't have a slide for this. In fact, we're not going to use the opening slides that we were thinking about. I, I just want to read this to you. If this, if this would be helpful, you're not going to see these words up on the screen. You can flip in your Bibles to Joel 2 if you want. But it may be more effective to just, in some senses, even close your eyes, listen, feel the weight of these words from Joel. When I'm done with that, I'm actually going to read from two different Psalms, the other two Psalms that Peter quotes in his sermon. So for a little bit, you are going to hear the Old Testament read because these are the Old Testament references that Peter makes in his message. So listen to the entirety of Joel 2, Psalm 110, and Psalm 16. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them throughout years of generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Their land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses they run, and with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the top of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Just so you know, there had been a locust plague that had just hit, and that's why you're hearing about these incredibly dexterous soldiers 
it does sound like an army that's uh, almost something out of Lord of the Rings, climbing up walls and those sorts of things. He's using army language to talk about this plague that, that just hit them. Continuing on in verse 6, before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army and his camp is exceedingly great. For he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? I will restore to you the years that the swarming... Sorry, I skipped a little bit. This is uh, still going. <laughs> uh, let's keep going there. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall dream, see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Interesting passage, isn't it? That was Joel Chapter 2. Now listen to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way 
Therefore, he will lift up his head. You get the feel of the two chapters that he's already quoted from? Here's the third, Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Sorry, that is where I, uh, my other one went to. I see my problem now. Anyway, are you feeling the weight of this? I've got paper in front of me, and I got a little confused in my reading of it. Imagine you're Peter. You have been praying and waiting as, as Jesus said that you ought to have done. You have been in Jerusalem, and you are waiting for this promise from the Father that Jesus has said he's all in on, this is going to be connected, and you are seeing that something happened at Passover, and you might be kind of waiting for what is going to happen at Pentecost, and then it happens. In the upper room, 120 people are overwhelmed with the presence of God in such a way that they're beginning to speak, and it's as though the opposite of the Tower of Babel is happening. Right? We've thought about that moment at Babel. Two people who share the same language at some point are unable to complicate or are unable to communicate, and the, the work site becomes the most complicated place you've ever seen. Because two people who used to be able to understand each other now can no longer understand each other. And in some measure of you know, kind of people picking teams or finding their own space. Everybody sort of assembles together who can understand each other and they make their way out. The exact reverse is happening here, right in front of Peter. Peter's very aware that this is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had said. But nobody else knows what's going on. And so they're starting to mock this. There's some level of confusion. There's a lot of different responses. But primarily what Peter's responding to in the beginning of his sermon is those that have been mocking. Because I'm hearing something I can't understand. It's sounding like Babel. I can hear some people I do understand. That's sounding logical to me. This is probably just people who were drunk. And Peter needs to start responding to that. Now, if you're Peter, maybe Jesus' words to you in the upper room, don't be afraid of what you're going to need to say because the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will bring to mind everything you need. And somehow, in fulfillment of that promise, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Joel 2, all of it kind of rushes into his mind and this 
three-point sermon, four-point sermon starts to make its way out before him. I would love it if that was the gift that the Lord gave to me. 9 a.m. Sunday morning, I wake up fresh as a daisy because I had a nice long sleep. And I just pray, Lord, in the same way that you filled Peter to write this great sermon and just deliver it, would you do the same thing this morning? Sometimes you may be wondering, is that what happened the night before? I can say on, on average, no, it is not what happened the night before in my case. But it would be interesting if this is the way things work. This is, seems to be the way it works for Peter here. What we're going to do is we're going to try and take his message just as we get it. And so we're going to see Peter in his very pointed and prophetic sermon. We'll take it in little chunks. And then at the end, I want you to see the response of the people that are there. And at the end, I want us to kind of long for the fruit that God created out of that process. A sermon preached and responded to, and then the Acts chapter 2 kind of bliss. Eden arriving, it seems, in a community of saints who believe the same thing and are living out exactly what Jesus called for in this kingdom. But it happens from a sermon. So let's read the sermon. It begins in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, where Peter says, don't worry guys, it wasn't all this other stuff. But he starts in, it says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, isn't it interesting where he starts in Joel? There had been a blast of locusts that had come through. The people were perplexed. Joel came to speak and to share this day of the Lord that happened using prophetic language that had been in Israel's psyche for a long time. The day of the Lord referenced many moments when God had saved his people and judged his enemies at the same time. The, the prototype of that in Israel's history would be their deliverance from Egypt, right? Everything that would have been in their memory banks because they celebrated it every single year was how God judged Egypt and delivered Israel. That was the first day of the Lord. Now, some prophets would speak of a day of the Lord and they would reference actually Israel as the enemy. You guys have become so much like Egypt that God's going to have to visit a day on you. You, the rich, have been abusing the poor, and so God will deliver the poor among you and judge the rich and powerful among you. Not the Egypts out there, but the Israels. And so the day of the Lord in Old Testament usage is often like we read here in Joel. Within the same chapter, it seems like he's looking backward and saying, we all just got blasted by this plague, day of the Lord. And then he turns into the future and says, and there's another day of the Lord. And so if you're just asking, Joel, Joel, wait, 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 wait. When is the day of the Lord? It's, it's maybe a little bit more if we were to use our kind of language that we sometimes use. Our D-Day kind of moments. What is that? That's a reference, historical reference to World War II. We know what happened then, but we're also talking about that in a way that kind of anticipates or 
ties it to this present moment. This is one of those decisive moments in history that, like what happened in the past, is going to make a decisive, moment, or a decisive impact for us going into the future. It was a D-Day, and we have a D-Day, and we're anticipating perhaps other D-Days. Or maybe the 9-11 language winds up taking root in our culture, where we look back at September the 11th, and should something terrible happen again, we'd have to say, this was another Pearl Harbor, another 9-11, those, those kinds of moments. That's probably the best way for us to think of this usage of Day of the Lord. And we see it right here in Joel 2. But notice everything that, that Peter skips from Joel 2. He's clearly going to Joel 2. He's not obviously being able to look at something that's a disaster. He's looking at instead the fulfillment of a great promise in the midst of that Old Testament disaster. He's saying, after people see what God has done and repent, God pours out his spirit. That seems to be the pattern from the Old Testament. And he's saying, there was a pouring out of the Holy Spirit right now. Here's what the pouring out of the spirit will result in. Verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall Prophesy, your old men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, my male servants and my female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. He continues, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And you're asking, Peter, why did you, I see why you skipped so much of what you quoted in Joel. Shouldn't you have truncated things a little bit? Because, yes, we get it. These guys aren't drunk. We get it. You're saying that they're speaking in ways that are abnormal because they are empowered by the poured out spirit. But why are you talking about blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood before a great day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we can't say that Pentecost is the fulfillment of that part of Joel 2. But just like Joel in the past pointing ahead and saying there is judgment for those who don't repent. He presents the coin that has both sides. There is blessing and the pouring out and the promise of the father for those who do. And there is the flip side of the coin judgment for those who don't. He's preaching a pointed and prophetic sermon using not all of Joel 2, but he doesn't just stop at the good stuff. He doesn't just stop at the moment where people are saying, could you help us understand the speech around us? Yes, I will. But understand, it's not just about getting the ability to speak like this. It's about making sure that your hearts are repentant in such a way so that you would be qualified, so to speak. So that the road would be paved for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And your repentance channels the blessing of the Spirit towards you. But for those unrepentant, that locust plague is nothing compared to what Joel was pointing to. And in the same way, Jesus has said that Jerusalem is about to see some trouble in their lifetime. He was very clear on this point. There is 
in Jerusalem, where he is right now, there is a day of judgment coming. And so we ask, is that the final judgment? But much like Joel saying, there has been judgment, there will be future judgment. There is a pointing ahead as well that Peter is making the point of. And yet we come back to verse 21, and here's the summary of it at the first hard stop in his message. Let me quote the last thing from Joel 2 I need you to know. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's his first sermon point and Old Testament reference. He grabs this really obscure, but also really pointed Old Testament text. Says, here's the two sides of the coin. Repent and receive the Spirit. Don't repent, face judgment. And yet, this is an offer for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this isn't just Peter using that Old Testament text. In the book of Romans chapter 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Why? For scripture says two things. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing and blesses on all who call on him. And that's getting to Paul's major point, right? Paul's major point when he's writing to the Romans is don't distinguish between Jew and Gentile. Don't rank people. God lets everyone who believes and speaks be saved regardless of their heritage, regardless of their fill in the blank, education, popularity, whatever. But the second point then that he makes from the Old Testament is the quote also from Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is the first hard stop in Peter's message. And yet there's one other point that I think is really interesting. We guys were talking on Saturday morning. We were talking about design patterns in narrative. The way that stories are told. The way that history is recounted and trying to let the structure kind of make its point. Well, as conversations do, we sort of started there and wound our way to some other things. And we were talking pretty soon about prophecy and the gift of tongues. Let me ask you a question. What do we see? What gift do we see taking place in the book of Acts, chapter 2? It is the gift of... But Peter said prophecy. Interesting, isn't it? We would call this the gift of tongues, particularly in this context, the ability to speak in a language that you haven't studied, you haven't worked on, so that somebody else can hear the wonders of God proclaimed in their language. It catches all of their attention. It seems to make a big difference. And yet, Peter goes back and grabs a word called prophecy. Which I find intriguing. Because Paul will later on make a distinction in the book of 1 Corinthians between the gift of tongues which seems to be a, a group of folks in the church who were saying, we've got the original power. And if we have the original Pentecost power, then we probably have a greater importance among everybody else in the church. And Paul says, well, if you were so important, why do you need a sidekick in order for us to even understand what you're talking about? If outsiders come into your building and you're all just talking in foreign languages, they're not going to know what's going on. But if a word of prophecy is spoken, you see what he does. He distinguishes between the two. 
We're not studying 1 Corinthians. Instead, we're studying a text, a sermon in this text, where Peter doesn't seem to make a distinction between the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. Does he? Instead, what he says is basically this. When people are filled with the love of God through the work of the Spirit of God, when the, to use the Romans 5 language, when the love of God is poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit, they can't help but speak. So that Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 5, you should be continually filled with the Spirit. And then if he says, if you are, here are the things that you'll be doing. You'll be speaking. You'll be singing. You'll be speaking words of gratitude and encouragement. And you'll be submitting to one another. But three of the four of the things are just people talking. The Spirit unlocks our tongue so that what captivates our heart comes out of our mouths, which is kind of Paul's point. Why are you saved? You're saved because something has grabbed you so deeply in the side through the work of, your, the, work of the Spirit that it no longer stays academic, but it becomes watery. You become like a sponge saturated in something, so much so that what you're saturated in is now in you and it's going with you wherever you go. And so you're this big sloppy sponge being thrust into a bucket and brought back out into the workplace and thrust into a bucket and brought back out into the workplace. And Peter's saying, that's what's going on, guys. The prophets are here. And there's no distinction about who has this capacity. The gift mix will be described and dissected a little bit later on. But this capacity is the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. Now, if what you wanted to do right there is just put the pause and go, great, Peter, how do we get the power? Because that's impressive. I want to be impressive like that. Well, this wasn't all of Peter's sermon, was it? He doesn't just stop here and say, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, actually, there's something you need to repent from. So listen as he continues this pointed and prophetic sermon in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And if you're a Theophilus and you're reading this, Luke could just say, just go back and read part one of everything that I sent you, Theophilus. That's what I'm referring to that Peter was kind of getting at here. These are signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, it's unfair because I've got verse 23 on two different slides. But would you just grab verse 23 with me? Look at your Bibles if you've got it. Or look at the two different parts of this. Why did Jesus die? Part 1, the beginning of verse 23. This Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why did Jesus die? Second part of verse 23. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is why I say Peter is preaching a very pointed sermon. He is not saying that you stole the plan from God and you short-circuited and ripped out control of the universe from the God of the universe. This was his plan. 
but you are responsible. And as I said in the beginning, his language is not selective. You guys weren't here. You're good. <clears throat> and you guys are okay. No. All y'all did this. All y'all killed him. All of y'all crucified him by the hands of lawless men, but it was your doing. This is one of those moments where I think we have to ask the question, is Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Is it pointing to the historical people in this moment, or does it speak beyond this moment? So that if any of us were hearing for the first time the good news about Jesus, do we have to come to grips that we're part of that group as well? Do we have to come to grips with the fact that we are responsible for the death of God who was delivered up according to the definite plan of the sovereign God? And without trying to over-spiritualize a moment, I think Peter is preaching to a crowd that was there and not in a way that he would preach to us today. You 2,000 years later are responsible for the death of the Son of God. And it's not because we were the ones who did it. He even throws in a little qualifying prepositional phrase. Two of them, right? By the hands of lawless men. It's not you who nailed him, but it's still your fault. It wasn't you who planned it. That was actually the God of heaven. But it's still your responsibility. And you got to square up with your contribution to the need that Jesus came to fulfill. And I will say this, trying to take a nudge from Peter. If you have been in Christian circles, if this is the third sermon you've listened to today online because you're just trying to get your fix of religious stuff, and you've never once squared up with your own sense of responsibility for the fact that you contributed to the rebellion and the decay, the death and the destruction, the curse that Jesus absorbed was in part yours. If you've never squared up with that, you cannot pretend to have any benefit in the life that comes from Jesus because it is a, another coin with two sides. You cannot say, I want to benefit from all Jesus did for me if you can't also say there's a lot he did for me that I deserved. We can't just say I want to be treated by God the Father the way Jesus deserved without also recognizing that Jesus was treated by God the Father the way that I deserved. And that moment hits home. We don't see them interrupting him and going, no! no that will happen in Acts people will be talking and Luke will record moments where people are just ver just ferociously interrupted but here he continues this is hitting them but he points out in verse 24 God though raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it and here then he quotes his second Old Testament reference for David says concerning him I saw the Lord 
always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my tongue my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Pointing where they stand in the midst of this. He says, you know, you know that Psalm that has all those promises of hope and life deliverance from destruction and death. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the only one who deserved that. He is the only one who could read this and say, I'm the one who lived out every blessing of this. I'm the one who would ultimately be delivered by you. I'm the one who has been perfectly full of gladness with your presence. And I'm the one who whenever I encountered Hades and death, I was not abandoned to these things. You didn't let me. Your holy one see corruption. Peter's saying. That psalm. It wasn't about us guys. It was about him. Second point. Of Peter's message. First point. What you're seeing is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it requires repentance. Second point. Here's what you've got to repent of. You killed Jesus. He's alive though. And now. Alive and reigning, you got to square up with your contribution towards his death. Third point continues in verse 29. So brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out on you. I poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the beginning of the third psalm. And that psalm starts with kind of a confusing use of two of the same word two different times. The Lord said to my Lord. And this is being composed by David. So, what was David talking about? Commentators had always kind of struggled over what is really going on. Something significant is clearly going on in it. And Peter says, let me explain. The Lord said to Jesus, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Peter is saying David wasn't talking about himself. It may have had echoes of it, but he says it this directly, right? In verse 30, he would set one of his descendants 
on his throne. And he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. So he's saying, in the very past, David was saying, something's going to happen out into the future. And people have been asking, over the years, over the years, over the years, was David talking about himself? Who's the Lord? Who's the other Lord? Peter's going, it's all abundantly clear right now. David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. And he's saying that he is at the right hand of the first Lord who's actually accomplished all this. The one who, by his definite plan, delivered him up to death, which is your fault, was not ultimately successful because his ultimate plan was that he would ascend and have all of his enemies set underneath him. In other words, the thing you participated in was part of his ultimate triumph and victory, even though it looked like his death, because death was the thing that he actually was out to defeat in the first place. Now, pointed sermon. What we've done so far is kind of listen to his sermon so far, and verse 37 says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I skipped a verse, just so you know. Because what we're about to see is their response. Their receptive response, their repentant response. And it's right there for us in verse 37. They are cut to the heart. They're just hearing this message which just so we remember, it's been a little bit that we've been diving into it, is just on the heels of their amazement at what's going on in the courtyards all around them, people speaking in different languages. And Peter's just explained what happened to Jesus, what was prophesied about Jesus, what was planned for Jesus, but what actually happened according to their responsibility to this Jesus. And it cuts them to the heart, and they said, what should we do? But here was the last thing that Peter said, verse 36. It's almost a way of just kind of summing up his conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, which we know are just sort of Jesus' middle or last names, something like that, right? He's the Lord Jesus Christ, first name Lord, last name Christ, middle name Jesus. Not really, right? As a man... He would be Jesus, the son of Joseph, right? Lord and Christ aren't, aren't names. They're not first or last names. They're titles. The Lord is the one who rules. The Christ is the one who saves. And what Peter has been saying is Jesus is both of them. He is the one through the process of God's plan and you're handing him over he is the one who's become the Messiah. He is the one who saved you through his death, but then through his resurrection and his ascension, he is now both the risen and reigning Messiah. This Jesus, whom you crucified, has been made into the Lord and the Christ. And that's what hits them with a ton of bricks. You killed this Jesus 50 days ago? He's alive. And he's reigning. <laughs> what are we going to do? You've seen this moment in movies, right? 
The Lion King? Right? Whether you go for the animated one or the vastly inferior remake. <laughs> you know what happens when Scar faces Simba for the first time, right? He's supposed to be dead! Which you could use any other movie if you want. But this Jesus isn't dead. This Jesus has come back to take up his place to reign. And these guys, like Scar, are sitting there going, oh no. Really, what do we do? This is the moments, mom and dads, whether we know the gospel and parent according to the gospel, or whether we're going to decide to be pagans like the rest of mankind. You've had this moment with your kids, haven't you? The pot's on the floor. It's broken. The dirt's all over your new carpet. There's a ball over there in the corner. We all remember, I walked out of here five minutes ago and said, don't throw the ball in the room. I walked out the door. I heard you laughing. I heard the crash. I heard you scurry around. Where's the vacuum cleaner? I walked into the room. Here we are. What do we do? Oh, you're right. We did it. Now here's the question. Are we Christian parents? Are we gospel-believing parents? When someone is caught in their sin, what do we do? It is not Christian parenting to say, oh, don't worry about it. You defied me. You broke my rule. It's okay. It's not Christian parenting to say, well, this is going to come out of your allowance. And once it comes out of your allowance and you've atoned for what you've done wrong, it'll be okay. It's not Christian parenting to say, well, I'm going to treat you like a jerk or I'm going to lose my temper. None of that is Christian. That's just common. It's just the way the world works. Tit for tat. You did something wrong. I'm going to get angry. You did this. You're going to have to pay it back. Now, there's wisdom at times, and that can even be biblical. But it's not the message of the gospel on display in our parenting, is it? Papa Peter is right here. The ball's on the ground. The pot is broken. Jesus has been crucified. It's their fault. They're cut to the heart. They're asking, Dad, what do we do? Now listen to his response. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You may have heard one of those words accented a little harder. It's not repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for your self-atoning of your sins, so that if you were to repent, and if you were to be baptized, somehow that's a deed you did that, you know, balances out the scales. No, there is one solution to even the guilt of the death of the Son of God. And it is only that God would wipe away sin. So you got to own it. It looks like you have. 
So I want you to adopt a brand new mentality. I want you to so adopt this brand new mentality that you are going to be baptized not into some of your works, some of your deeds, into the identity of your perfection. You're going to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ so that what happened in his death can forgive your sin. And that message works. For the promise, verse 39, is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So that if we want to be Christian parents, to go back to the parallel illustration for a second, and we want our kids to get the same reality that Peter was trying to drive into the crowds, we would say to our children, you are responsible for this. Can you confess? Can you agree with that reality? Yes. It gets a little worse because God has actually called you to honor your father and your mother. He's said that for you under my authority, that means that you're to be obeying me. And so not only did you disobey and disrespect me, but you actually disobeyed and you disrespected God. What can you do to make this right? The only thing I could present to you, my son or my daughter, is I forgive you. If you're willing to acknowledge your sin, I forgive you. And I have grieved our Father in heaven in exactly the same way. So let me lead you in the process of repenting to him, of confessing to him, so that you can be assured that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because this moment will be repeated in their lives over and over and over. And Peter, leading his kids back to the Father for the forgiveness of their sins, with many other words, he bears witness and continues to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is, this is what we want, right? Every time the truth is presented, every time sin is confronted, we want to see people come back and say, I can't believe that this is true. But if this is true, I am cut to the heart. I am somehow, by these words that you're presenting, I'm split open and bare. I don't know what to do. And the Christian has the privilege of being able to come along and say, you do exactly what I did. You come to God and you ask for forgiveness so that he can bring you into Christ and change you so that you're not like the rest of the world. That's the only hope for all of us, guys. And that moment takes place. And I think if we can pause for a sec before we marvel at what else God does at the end of this chapter, I think this is a moment we should be praying for more often. Because Peter does nothing to prep for it. This isn't Peter handing out flyers. Holy Spirit's gonna show up. Let's get everybody here. 
He's just doing what God has told him to do. In the middle of it, the Holy Spirit shows up. And whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, people have a question. And when these people have a question, his promise to Peter is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit brings words to mind and Peter gets to speak them out. And people will go, what in the world do we do? And Peter's able to say, you, you go to God for forgiveness. And they do. And they're saved. Just like all the prophecies had said would happen. Guys, what if we prayed for that moment to take place in big and small ways throughout the course of this next week? What if when we woke up in the morning, we didn't worry so much about our plans, but we just said, Lord, prepare me for yours. Lord, I don't know exactly where you're going to take me this week, but would you help me with my kids not to miss the moments where they failed and I get to introduce them to a saving Jesus? Would you help me as I walk through my day just to be able to recognize someone who may be wrestling so deeply inside, cut to the heart deeply inside and just needs to know truth? Brother, you, you, friend, you seem kind of sad. Are you okay? What if we anticipated that these kinds of moments could happen in big and small ways through us? Because Peter used to take fish out of water and give them to people for money. That's who he was. Your job might be slightly more technical than that. And yet so often we think that this kind of work is reserved for the others. But we just recognize that Peter was the one sent, not because he was qualified, but because he was chosen. And I can say the same thing for all of you. The path God leads you on this week may lead you to people cut to the heart who just need you to speak of the overflowing love of God from what he's done to you so that you can help them experience the same God. But then beyond that, Having that happen in that moment with a church that goes from 120 people to 3,000 people at one moment. If we're paying attention, we're going, what do they do next? And Luke says, I'm glad you asked. Here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were a church committed in one verse to four things. They were devotedly committed to being taught, being in fellowship, being in community, and being in prayer. And this is so hard to make happen. 18 years of experience here. 10 years in a church back in Pennsylvania. It's so hard to make this happen. But isn't it great when it does? Isn't it amazing when we can see echoes of it here? When we can recognize that the reason we gather together for our fellowship, for our meals, is that we want to pray and discuss God's word together with people that we might not hang out with otherwise. But the only thing that binds us all together is we were forgiven by God, and so here we are. <laughs> God cut me to the heart. I heard the good news, and so here I am. 
And in their midst awe came upon every soul. And there were signs and wonders being done through the apostles. And everybody who believes were together. And they had all things in common. So much so that they were selling their possessions and belongings. And distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I just, I, I, can, I was talking with Aldo. Who's in charge of, uh, of our, of our uh, benevolence kind of fund. Right? And we were talking about the fact that there's actually too much money for our comfort level right now in the benevolence fund. But we were discussing conversations we've had with folks within the church where we were like, hey, we feel like there's a need here. We could probably try to help this need. And people were like, uh, yeah, you know, no, save that for people who are in need. I love being a part of a church where those are the conversations. We're having arguments about whether or not somebody can get money, right? Like, there are abundant needs, and what's happening here, compounded by the fact that all these people were here for pilgrimage, and they decided to stay for an extended holiday with minimal provisions, with no refrigerators, with no hotel sixes, all that kind of stuff. What are they going to do? Well, the folks that are around are like, I got stuff. This is a clear moment of God. I would love to sell my stuff to fund it. Wouldn't it be great if we heard of needs, maybe not even needs that are close to us, needs somewhere else, and we could say, hey guys, we'd love to help these needs. Oh, by the way, somebody's given like 20 grand, and if we could give 20 grand, then we could send 40 grand. And then we start talking as elders, and we're like, well, let's tell the church about it. And we're like, whoa, guys, um, there's a lot of money coming in. We just sent five grand. We're going to send another five grand. It looks like we're actually going to use up this entire $20,000 matching grant because of folks that are here, folks that are outside, that are hearing about needs in Nepal. Like, it's, it's happening. There was 120 people. I mean, at our biggest, we've been 180 people, right? Like, okay, well, actually, I'm seeing some parallels here that excite me, that encourage me, that, that there are people selling possessions and belongings. You know why they possessed them? You know why those things belonged to them? Because they wanted them. They might have bought them so they could use them. And they sold them. And when they were done selling them, you know what happened? They didn't have them anymore. That means that their lives were less convenient. That means they were less prosperous. That means their futures were maybe even less secure than before they gave it away. But they gave it away, distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. If you look in your bulletin, here's, here's what I put on the back sheet for this paragraph. I think that each of us in that large description from verses 42 through 47 have something that just grabs our hearts. You might be one of those who say, you know, like, I'd love it if we were seeing a little bit more of the day by day, those who are being saved or being added to their number. You might be a, I'd love to see the wonders and signs being done. You might be a, I'd love it if we were eating together a little bit more. There's, there's a different, this is just the sign of an active, filled with the Holy Spirit, robust community that is just kind of starting things off. We were praying before the service and I said, you know, guys, we're in Acts chapter 2 today. And I'm pretty sure that the, the, the group, the second chapter of Acts, is probably referring to this paragraph and not Peter's sermon kind of paragraph. 
You know, I don't think they named themselves after the you killed Jesus kind of moments. It's probably these moments. Why? Because these are beautiful moments. When we see echoes of these moments in the life of our church, we're just thrilled. And yet we read this and it creates longing for us as well, doesn't it? We read these things and we come back and we're like, wow, I would, I would love to see this happening in our midst. So I want to invite you to pray. Whatever it is, as we are reading through these verses, would you be praying please for us this week, this month, this year? As we wrap up 25 years as a church and we're thinking about the next 25, would you be praying about that quarter of a century and asking, God, would you please do this among us? Bring the unsaved and have them added into our number. Lord, would you make us more glad and generous? Would we be able to enjoy and share things together? Lord, would we be more sacrificial and and honest about our needs together? Lord, would we be those who are devoted to both your word and to praying together, who are devoted to fellowship and doing good? together. Lord, would you just make us like this? Guys, could you be praying for us in that regard? Because I'll say this. I think those are prayers that God answers. Because I don't think that Luke's point in recording this was one of those moments that's going to be like, here's what was happening. Boy, isn't that scary? There are going to come a couple moments in Acts that are going to be like, here's what happened. Wasn't that scary? This isn't one of them. I think the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke was saying, this is what was happening. Isn't this appealing? And so in whatever way this looks appealing to you, please pray with that kind of power and zeal that God works that way among us. Let me start that process by praying with us now. Father, we recognize in your word The things that you do that are extreme, that are bold. You adding 3,000 people to one little congregation here in a day so that they're just overwhelmed with need and overwhelmed with opportunity. Lord, that that seems amazing. I I don't know what we would do if 3,000 people showed up here next Sunday. But in whatever measure... You want to bless us, Lord. I pray that you would give us a greater hope that this is still possible. That your miraculous power being at work is still possible. That repentance and growth and change are still possible. That generosity this way is still possible. That, that Lord, we could be like them, devoted to teaching and prayer and fellowship time together. Lord, will we be marked by a similar generosity, by a similar mission, and will we sense the same kind of fruitfulness among us as you did in this moment here? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.